0: Welcome to this week's Brookie & Berger podcast. Welcome, Darren Burgess. G'day, Doc. How's it going up there? You're still up in the hub in uh, Queensland, while those of us down in lockdown Melbourne, Australia are uh, sitting at home, trilling our thumbs.
1: Up in the hub, Doc. It's about uh, nine weeks and counting. I've been living in a hotel room, so probably not as glamorous as what it sounds, but uh, nice to be able to get out of the house a little bit and. And uh, continue working, if I'm honest. But I must say, uh, just to try and deflect a little bit, that that is comfortably my favourite version.
0: All right. Well, that version of uh, You'll Never Walk Alone was uh, probably pretty well recognised as Louis Armstrong. Uh, He actually first recorded that back in 1954. Uh, Amazing. And uh, an unmistakable voice, Louis Armstrong. And that was the the choice of this week's guest. Perhaps you'd like to introduce him, Darren. Darren.
1: Yeah, we're very lucky lucky to have uh, Dr. Ryan Timmins um, on the on the podcast. G'day, Timo.
2: Well, uh, Joe, Doc, how are we all?
0: Good, good.
1: Um, uh, it probably, uh, we'll start off by getting Ryan to give a bit of his background, but I will say one of the things that we we're trying to do is ask some of the tough questions. And one of the things that we thought uh, we would do is is come at performance from an academic perspective. And Ryan's Certainly got that covered, but also uh, uh, works in a practical sense as well and the applied setting. So it's a nice combination. So uh, Brian, most most of our listeners will probably know who you are and certainly know of your work. Um, do you want to give us a quick uh, rundown? Yeah, no worries,
2: Bojo. I think, um, firstly, thanks for having me on. That was a good way to kill an hour for some people. But um, <laughs> for me, it all uh, kicked off in Queensland. I did my undergraduate uh, degree at the Queensland University of Technology um, then managed to get into the research world after that with uh, now Associate Professor Tony Shield, who was uh, the co-inventor of the Nord Board up there, so managed to hang around him for long enough, do a bit of hamstring research up there in Queensland and then made the, the big shift south to Melbourne in, in 2013 and, and have been freezing myself during winter ever since. Um, <laughs> I now I now work with the other co-inventor of the NordBoard, uh, Dr. David Opar, and we do a lot of research trying to um, address issues around hamstring injury and rehabilitation and injury prevention, but also trying to make sure that it's not um, too myopic and stuck in the laboratory sense, and we can actually integrate what we do in practice um, with guys like yourself, Virgil and, and and Doc, to try and make a difference in the practical land. Um, I guess my viewpoint from that comes from having worked in the A-League setting for about uh, 11 years through
1: periods at Brisbane Roar and, and then also Melbourne Victory, so. And Ryan, probably uh, most people are aware of your research but not necessarily aware of your applied uh, experience. So you mentioned 11 years working at the Coalface in Australian uh, football or soccer. Uh, but you also play at a, at a pretty elite level. Unfortunately, you're in a um, pretty crappy position, but uh, but but you play elite-level futsal.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm, the, I'm the, the big fella that jumps in front of the balls and tries to stop it from going in the net. So the, the decision to be a goalkeeper was one that just grew out of, um, I don't know, just it's idiocy more than anything <laughs> to try and uh, there's been a few incidences where it has tried to to recalculate a few of my brain cells but um no yeah, so i think that hopefully gives me a good understanding of what we can do but i think the yeah the practical stuff having been in soccer in australia and then you know having to to run off shoestring budgets and provide high performance programs and, and capabilities um, it's definitely been an interesting process considering the A-League's only been around for nearly 13, 14 years. So having been in that side of it for more than 75% of its lifetime has been quite enjoyable.
1: And it, it, obviously you've you've travelled extensively to speak at conferences and, and also probably visited uh, maybe 100-odd clubs um, around the world. I'm probably underselling that. Um, I'm going to gonna ask if you could be uh, uh, upfront and honest what what are some of the biggest frustrations that you see at at Clubland and obviously we're not naming names or anything like that but, but in terms of the implementation of some of the uh, of some of the evidence
2: I think the biggest frustration is the overcomplication of it all um, I think I look at it from a perspective that The the messages seem to be quite clear and quite simple, but yet we find very elaborate ways to avoid doing the simple things that seem to work. There's a, a, a large elaborate push to work away from high speed running into working into smaller, sharper acceleration, deceleration things When we know that we need max sprint exposures. The, the eccentric training perspective has always been one that astounds me, but we do find just, yeah, that people make something so simple and, and, and basic and just, just blow it up to be so complex and create many excuses in its place. It does become quite frustrating.
1: So when you say uh, simple, uh, I'll, I'll be the one being controversial because you've got <laughs> you've got, uh, you know, a research career to look after. Um, you mean that the reluctance of some people, for example, to implement, uh, say, a eccentric training strategy, despite the overwhelming evidence that supports its use as one tool to prevent hamstring injury?
2: Yeah, that's that's one one prong. I think the uh, the other side of it's also, you know, the lack of appropriate programming and prescription of these exercises and that assuming one size fits all and that everyone should just do one one, one approach and that'll solve your rugby league hamstrings to your AFL to your soccer hamstrings. And I think that um, generalised approach, whilst simple, is still missing the point and just an easy way out and people are just copying that and cheating because it's the simple process. And plus, like you said, with the eccentric stuff, once you have a sore athlete and they get off get off side and they don't like the doms and be create this, there's just a you know, spiral effect where you just find you're fighting the athlete, you're fighting the coach and, and it's an easy excuse, it's it's comfortable to get out and I just think, yeah, it gets very frustrating when you're having these conversations about people who or with people who go, I don't know why they're having so many injuries, I don't know why this keeps happening and then you the program, Miguel, mate, it's been 28 days since you've done an eccentric hamstring action, so there's one issue there. So, yeah, that just it becomes a a very, a very frustrating part of it all. We try and undertake this research to try and help industry, but yet
1: um, it still seems a simple and easy way is just they're ignored. Yeah, I must admit, um, uh, and Brookie, you may or may not have been uh, there when uh, Phil Coles and I, Phil Coles one of the world's best uh, performance specialists who's now at Boston Celtics. Um, and he uh, and I had, uh, well, as heated an argument as I've ever had about <laughs> whether to do uh, Nordics or not. And, and I was, no, because they're not specific to the sport. And this was in 2011, so it's a little while ago now. And he was uh, of the opinion that the evidence is even back then was fairly compelling. Um, And so uh, we just went back and forward for some time. So I could understand your frustration. We ended up doing them. Um, uh, I don't don't recall whether they uh, helped or or didn't help. But um, I I guess some of the frustration uh, or some of the reluctance to do it, you've mentioned the DOMS. Uh, There's the specificity. is there, is there any other um, main reason you think? Because it would appear, um, and again, I've come from a, a place of not, uh, you know, without sounding cultish like a non-believer because of the specificity point of view, to seeing the results um, myself of a, of a structured um, progressive program. Uh, is there any other reasons why people avoid it other than perhaps the doms and the and the specificity point of view if we're just talking about nordics and perhaps rdls and even yep. glued ham raises.
2: yeah i think the from 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 what i've the conversations i've had it seems to be this it sits in that space between physiotherapy and, and sports performance and like you said there's who who does this kind of exercise sit with? Does it sit with the performance staff because it's supposed to prevent injury because they want to then perform and so on and so forth? And it's the gyms that's seen as the performance staff's world. Or is it the physio and the doctor's side of things because it's injury and they want to prevent injury or want to sit there? So they kind of just chuck it in the middle and go, oh, someone will do it. But we don't know who and then no one really takes ownership of it. And I think that's just a simple excuse and go, oh, we can leave that out, but yeah, we'll still do our you know, our RDLs and and so on and so forth. But I think the biggest thing, like I said, the DOMS is is one aspect, but having someone invested in actually implementing it, tracking it and and growing, it does become um, part of the problem. And an easy excuse to go, oh, the physios are doing that and the physios go, oh no, the the performance guys are doing that. And then it just doesn't get looked at. and that's just not just for, for Nordics. It's any kind of eccentric exercise with the Hammies. It's just trying to program in a period of it. it has to be strateg- strategical because you have to think about where your games are and the doms and the players and the, the response that they might have. And it's just one of those simple kind of um, easy outs is just to go, ah, oh, someone else will do it kind of thing. So that seems to be one of the do you think it actually. lies? Uh, I think if you're looking at... Purely the Nordic on its own, so you're not looking at any other equally overloaded exercise. I think the Nordic on its own could probably lie within the, the sports medicine side of it. But that's if you take it from a purely uh-huh. um, purely just one exercise approach. And if you think that's the only exercise you should do, then maybe, maybe the physio sh- should manage that. But on top of that, you've got multiple exercises that you can utilize to provide us that useful eccentric stimulus which then becomes the the art of coaching if you're a performance coach your ability to modify exercise periodize and overload those exercises is is crucial to your art so um the multiple other exercises within it can probably sit within that sphere but yeah it has you're looking at it purely as two different silos in the ideal world everyone works together and everyone's involved in all decisions But um, as we know, that doesn't really kind of flow as easily as it should.
0: I think Nordics are almost almost too simple, uh, I reckon, uh, Ryan, don't you think? I mean, I think, (laughs) you know, I mean, a lot of uh, physios and uh, and sports scientists, you know, like to sort of... uh, Show you know that they got a special exercise or they're, they're doing something unique, and, and Nordics is sort of so basic and, and simple that, uh, but I think you know some people feel it's a bit below them to, uh, to do Nordics to, to yeah. instruct people on Nordics.
2: And that's where my first comment kind of comes from, it's just it's just kind of people see it as a simple approach the same as the high speed running it's simple you just need to do it and you do it well and someone takes ownership you program it you periodize it it's just simple and it just seems to be getting lost in the wash and everyone wants to do this alternative exercise which is fine but you still need your bread and your butter to actually to, to to grow and make people resilient and strong
0: so brian hamstrings are obviously the bane of all of our lives those of us involved in uh in, in running sports and particularly the different football codes and, and to be honest I mean the the number of hamstring injuries hasn't really changed much uh, over the last you know 10, 20 years I mean we've, we un- and I think we understand so much more about hamstrings There's so much more research being done and yet the, the bare numbers haven't really changed why is that do you think?
2: Yeah well, I think in the AFL looking at the trend over the last couple of years there was a small drop off but um, I think this year has kind of skewed it all again but yeah I think it's, it is a good question you ask um, rookie. Brookie I think that's just kind of we're getting people stronger and that's not solving the issue like we'd anticipated from a research perspective because the initial research was everyone's weak so those that are weak aren't getting, getting injured those that are weak are getting injured so let's make everyone strong and that'll you know, solve some of our issues but I think that it's been five or six years since that message has kind of been through the AFL system and, and, and cross sport in general and hasn't really been like you said the drop-off in incidents and then now people are starting to look at alternative conversations and alternative approaches to try and address that um, so I think maybe at a base level we're getting stronger but then trying to reduce this incidence needs to be probably a balance between not just the gym-based work, but also what we do on the field. And I just think there's limited knowledge around what we're actually doing out there and how that translates to risk reduction and hopefully the incidents going down. But I think that space is one area we probably going to have to develop to hopefully come out, come up and address those concerns. But yeah, I think like you said, we know a lot more than we did 10 years ago, but we still have the same amounts of injuries. Um, so it makes us think we have to probably pivot a few options. And I think the, the field and the running work is definitely one of those conversations we have to consider.
0: So if you were designing it, if I, uh, you know, I'm the coach or the boss of a, of a some sort of football club. And I said, I'm sick to death of all those hamstrings. You know, I'll give you a million dollars if you can give me a season where we don't have a hamstring injury. And you, you can do whatever you like with the players. Unlimited amount of, uh, of time and effort you can put into, uh, into hamstrings. We just can't afford hamstrings anymore. What, would, what program would you, uh, very briefly, you know, summarize, what would you put together?
2: I'd recruit young athletes without a issue. <laughs> oh, that's <Yeah>. shooting. Yes, <laughs> good answer.
0: <laughs>
2: I think uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the simple question. Um, yeah, no, I think at a minimum, we need, need them to run fast. Um, how often and how much comes down to the art of coaching and um, knowing Berger, he's, he's got a few ideas around that. But definitely running fast... And multiple times in a session, and at least once or twice a week, depending on match days, and so on and so forth, is, is a non-negotiable. Uh, when I say running fast, seventy percent of peak velocity isn't fast. Eighty-five percent is probably not even fast. Well, we're starting to see some research above ninety and ninety-five percent being the stuff that you need to do. Um, so fast, like fast, fast, kind of running, um, sure. and then couple couple of that with some eccentric stimulus in the gym consistent periodized overloaded eccentric work Um, whether that's a Nordic whether that's using flywheel devices whether that's something that just gives you you know, a simple two up one down RDL or something like that that gives you an eccentric stimulus over just the, the conventional resistance training exercises I think that's a simple kind of method and whilst I say it's simple well it's just the things that are getting ignored because it's too simple you know, we gotta run fast to make our athletes resilient enough to resist damage in a match. And then the stuff we do in the gym helps to make them more robust to offset that damage response. Um, but I just don't think the simple stuff's done properly. I think it's the easy way out because, you know, there's DOMS, it's hard to run fast and then also do gym stuff because um, there's something going on in the schedules these days. but. That doesn't really answer you, your question as, no, as, as a good, brief a as good you start. want, you?
0: <laughs> No, I'll bring Virgil in here too because, uh, you know, I, th- I think the running fast thing is a really interesting uh, thing because now that we've got GPS, you know, we know exactly what uh, what every athlete is doing at every training session, every game. And, and what amazed me was that uh, in training sessions that you think are reasonably intense, so few athletes are running at 95% of, uh, of full speed. And, You know, I know, Virgil, you like to top people up and so on. Do you want to take us through the way you sort of approach um, getting those maximum speeds during the week at training? Yeah, look,
1: I I don't think it's necessarily the answer, but I think um, I remember speaking to Ryan and Dave when uh, at Port Adelaide we had sort of three or four hamstrings to really good players in a three or four-week period. This is a few years back now, and um, I said to... uh, we flew to myself and Mckew and flew over to Melbourne and a night earlier than the game and said we'll take you out for dinner if you have a chat to us. And one of the things that you guys said, which is stuck with me, was um, just get them as strong as possible in as many different ways and they'll cope. And I, I think um, from a hamstring point of view, one of those things is is that repeated exposure to um, to maximal velocity running so that there's no surprises in a game and. Uh, So our theory, I guess, that we developed after that was um, just make sure every seven to ten days that the players are exposed. So, for for example, if you happen to play in the wet one day and there's not a maximal exposure, then at some point during the week, you'll need to get a a maximal speed exposure because you just don't want the hamstrings to go, you know, potentially a two-, three-week period without... Um, without being exposed to that uh, that maximal speed or near max speed. So we just tell the players, I need you to go up max today, give them an opportunity in, in the warm-up typically at, at Melbourne in the, in the current situation, Dave Watts uh, puts them through a, a speed warm-up and uh, we, we give them an opportunity. If they don't get it there, then yeah. I'll just say to them, um, listen, uh, at some point during the day, during the session, you need to get to max speed and if they don't, and we'll, we'll have a go at it after. And I'll just update them at each drill. And most of the time, the players come to me, have I got it, have I got it? Or to David game. Regan, our sports scientist, have I got it, have I got it? And, and very rarely are we topping people up after training uh, anymore. I, I think there's also a volume component as well. Uh, some of the work that Graham has done at, um, at Port Adelaide and, and prior to that, him with, with uh, Jared Egan, uh, sort of suggested that there was a volume component of, of uh, sprint running as well, which I think is um, is important also um, to make sure that if you have a really uh, high velocity athlete that gets a lot of zone six, we'll call it, or sprint distances and entries, and they have a couple of weeks where they're not doing that, there might be a game where if they're a, a striker or a right wing back, or left wing back, or uh, in the AFL, various positions where for two or three, for whatever reason, they haven't been required. The game hasn't demanded they run a lot of high sprint distances. Uh, but you need to prepare them for the fact that it may well happen. It's particularly revel- uh, pre- prevalent or relevant sorry, in soccer or football where the tendency is to go small-sided games so you don't get that repeat exposure. But we're here to talk to Timo, not me. Um, <laughs> so yeah what yeah, are, what are well, your thoughts on that ryan
2: yeah well, I, I, I certainly think the the volume periodization and prescription of that side of sprinting work or zone six work is something that needs to evolve i think it's easy enough and like you said yeah we, we get guys get one exposure or a exposure at some point within seven to ten days but then it's Again, how do we how do we progress that? How do we periodize? How do we overload? Um, how do we manage load? Obviously, we manage every other load that they do. Can we not manage that? And how do we actually do that? Um, so that's some work we're trying to work out and, and get some answers to. With with um, were there were a couple of VFL clubs before everything shut down, but trying to actually actually get athletes to, to sprint, periodize that. And then what happens? Do they adapt? How, how do they adapt? Do they get stronger? Um, do they have structural changes? Can, can they actually um, withstand repeat efforts after that? And I think it's a question, it's not as easy to answer like we can in the gym because in the gym you can control so much that you do. You can control the velocity, you can control the weight, you can control the repetitions. Whereas once you go outside and, and you're just doing you know, sprinting or zone six efforts. That's all well and good, but then a, a bloke goes and they have a practice match the next couple of days, and he does thirty efforts that you never thought he'd do. So, it's just mm. it's very hard to control the, the unknown. I think, like you said, we plan for the worst case scenario, we develop program, but then I think definitely in the five days that we might have, or three days that you might have in in a training week, what can you actually do in that period? And what what does it what does it result in? Um, I think we're going definitely in a, in a from a minimalistic point of view, because it's simpler to um, apply and prescribe. But definitely a space that I think we don't really know much, many of the answers from from a research perspective in how that actually might offset the risk of injury. Um, we know some of the adaptations, some of the guys. If, so JB Moran and crew over there have been doing some some good sprint training interventions, looking at um, force-velocity profiling and how you can actually look at from an individual athlete perspective to to reduce injury risk. But I think we, we just don't have as much um, clarity on how effective the the volume dosage is from a sprinting perspective to to reduce injury risk in in, um, in sports around the world at the moment, so um, in just yeah, about
0: think, every uh, just about every Olympic hundred meter f- every four years, someone tears a hamstring. Now they're <laughs> obviously doing lots of high speed running. Why why does that happen?
2: Uh, it's a good question about the hundred meter final. I obviously there's this new conversations going around now about the the technique development and skill development of sprinting and the actual time spent on that versus actual high speed running and you'd argue that your hundred meter sprinters would have some of the best techniques um, in the world because that makes them the fastest in the world. Uh, but they have all they've got to do is run in a straight line so that's, that's very all well and good if all you' got to do is run in a straight line for hundred or 200 meters maybe around a corner but once you have to do it in a team sport setting and have to dodge a 100 kilo bloke trying to take a ball off you, it the running straight line technique kind of goes out the window. And I guess coming back to the question about the 100 meter sprint, it, this could be a whole bunch of things, but I think there's definitely a lot of stuff going down at the muscle tissue level that we don't completely understand. Now, whether technique influences that, whether strength we know does alter some of the elastic properties of muscle um, maybe they're just overtrained from having to do so many sprints across a certain period of time at Olympic Games in such a short window. Maybe that, that, that creates more stress um, than they're probably geared towards. But, yeah, definitely the, the sprinting technique stuff is, especially in the team sport setting, is an area that I, I, I don't think the quality of research is there to support it. And I think it's all definitely, I work from a, is it this, yes or no? Can we actually quantify things? Whereas a lot of it's very subjective. But, oh, do you think he's got good technique or do you think he does this? And, you know, you look at some videos of Usain Bolt's early sprinting technique and he's, you know, he's got, you know, classify horrible technique. But now he's, he's you know, equals like the world, so we should all run like him. But why? Um and then even then you look at some of the fastest team sport athletes out there and they have what would be classed also as horrible technique but yet they still manage to get 36 k's an hour down the sideline in with a hundred kilo bloke chasing them so yeah i think the evidence isn't there and i don't know how we're going to get the evidence to do it it's such a, a variable a subjective space that i think definitely needs a lot more work you um, and probably someone uh, a lot smarter than me to do
0: it. <laughs> so what do you see as the biggest research challenge for, for you and your group uh, at, this, uh, at this time, uh, Um
2: I think trying to find a balance between uh, applying small-scale interventions from a laboratory perspective in an applied setting, trying to develop things that we can actually do in the laboratory or at the university, that actually changes what guys like Berjo and yourself do day to day. I think we've we've tried to strike a balance um, with some of the interventions and programs that we've developed, but just need to completely consider. Or I think sometimes reconsider what we're doing in a laboratorys perspective to actually help us change and guide what our, our practitioners actually do. so um, and, and trying to do that on a large scale, not just in a 30 bloke recreational uni student kind of study but you know applying those intentions at a, at a more cohort specific level to actually see you know what does this actually mean anything it does, can actually these 40 teams do something with what we do. Um, otherwise it's all pointless so I think that's a big challenge for a lot of research and, and specifically our stuff at the moment trying to make that translation stick.
1: I, I think that's one of the the best point you made there is a criteria base I think we can all fall into that criteria base um, uh, if they can walk pain-free then they can jog if they can jog pain-free then they could sprint as long as it's all pain-free when we know from the research that pain doesn't equal injury that's that's absolutely uh not in dispute um so i, I think yeah you, the point you made there about a little bit of uh awareness is okay and most practitioners that i've worked with will do that will will push players through a little bit of awareness but i think sometimes we can get uh caught up in that criteria base they can only do a e- light eccentric work at day seven because the tissue is sufficiently healed by then to tolerate. Um, when the reality is, we don't know that. Um, yeah, so man, that, that was one of the really big lessons I learned from you. Yeah, it's easy
2: for me to say that from a research lab because I don't. It's not my job on the line if I've got a forty million pound striker who I say yeah, you go to Nordics three day post injury. I don't have to exactly. deal with that. <laughs> I can just say oh, yep. yeah, mate you should do it. But um, yeah, definitely there's, there's situational awareness. But I still think there's yeah, like I said, something to be be said for using the exercise to to guide and how they actually tolerate the exercise to guide the prescription of it more so than these 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 sometimes arbitrary tick boxes
1: yeah absolutely absolutely I agree
0: yeah there was a uh, an old colleague of mine uh, uh, by the name of Graham Reed as a physiotherapist the Australian hockey team so way back in the probably in the uh, in the 80s um, he was uh, and when you basically had a muscle injury and they shut you down for a week or 10 days or whatever, you know, you can't, can't do anything, rest, ice, compression, all that sort of stuff. He used to get the hamstring injuries out the next day, start running, uh, just within. And again, he said, I don't mind some discomfort. I just don't want increasing pain or sharp pain. But that sort of dull, uh, that dull ache, he didn't mind. And uh, and he had fantastic results, but yet uh, his methods, you know, they weren't very scientific, and we didn't obviously didn't have GPS and, and all that in those days. But it was remarkably effective, and uh, you know, I've, I've always always remember that, and always learnt from that, from that. That I think you you can certainly get them running very quickly after a muscle injury.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No worries, too Look, I really appreciate you coming on, mate. It's slightly different podcast to, to, to perhaps uh, the, the normal ones hopefully and, and hopefully we haven't caused you too much heartache in the academic uh, sort of world but um, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on board and uh, when you actually can uh, get out of the house in Melbourne I look forward to you buying me a, a nice Melbourne coffee mate.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate having me on. Um hopefully I get as many listens as the Travis Bo does, but you know, I'm probably at the same level I think.
1: Uh Yeah, you're in rare company there. You yeah. Know, your goalkeeping career versus uh yeah, his AFL <laughs> career is very
2: similar. No thanks again, I Appreciate the offer and um I look look forward to watching the podcast grow as we we, we get on the time, but nothing else to do with my days. I might as well <laughs> get around this oh, thing.
0: Thanks a lot, Ryan. We really appreciate it, and uh, you know I'm glad Perjay finally enjoyed one of the uh, intros uh, with Louis Armstrong, and uh, you know it will keep him happy. Absolutely. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, to next time. Thanks a lot, Jim.